We uh, begin a study to Paul's epistle to the Philippians this morning. It'll take us probably through the early part of June. So if you're visiting this morning or if you've been kind of new to Christ's Community Church, you have come at a good time. Uh, without doubt, the book of Philippians is one of my favorite books in the Bible, certainly in the New Testament, but that's not why we are studying it together. Uh, we're studying the book of Philippians uh, because this book is, this epistle that Paul wrote is uniquely relevant to us here at Christ Community Church. The reason for that is that we are, uh, by God's rich grace and mercy, experiencing a time of our church of just really sweet fellowship and unity and joy over what the Lord is doing. So too were the Philippians. Uh, we would say in our modern vocabulary that the Philippians were a healthy congregation. They, they were nothing um, like their brothers and sisters who, in Corinth, who spiritually speaking were all over the map. They weren't like their friends over in Galatia who were embattled over the very core essence of the gospel. The Philippians, they were growing in grace. They were bearing fruit. They were concerned to be a faithful people of God, loving God, His Word, His people, concerned about God's plans, His purposes, and His promises. They were a church that was doing what a church ought to be doing. So much so that even 50 years, nearly half a century after this epistle was written, in the second century of the church, the bishop to Antioch, Ignatius, would testify that he had received the same kind of affection and care from the Philippians that Paul himself did 50 years earlier. So, the Philippians Community Church would be a church you definitely would want to visit if you moved into town. And we don't know anything about their youth group. We don't know anything about their music program. We don't know if they saw, sang contemporary songs that were coming out of Rome at the time, or they sang hymns. We don't know any of that. What we do know about them, though, was that they loved the Lord. They cherished the gospel. They loved God's people, and they put the gospel as the priority of their lives. Now, now, to be clear, uh, I don't want you to think that the Philippians were a perfect church. They were not a perfect church by any stretch of the imagination. You'll realize that as you read the book of Philippians. I encourage you to do that this week. It'll take you maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes at the most to read it. You'll realize that they had problems like any other church does. But still, they were doing really well. John MacArthur calls the letter of Philippians one of Paul's sunniest letters. It's clear that Paul loved these people and had such great affection for them. So the question that we ask when we look at a letter like Philippians is, can a church that's doing well, can a church like that that's enjoying sweet fellowship and unity and joy of what God is doing, can they take their ease and can they just relax? They just enjoy this season of sweet fellowship and, and, and what the Lord is doing uh, and, and enjoy the accoutrements and privileges of living in such a prestigious city like Philippi. Can, can they just keep going to church, being faithful, giving, being concerned about what God is doing and enjoy this life while waiting for an even better life to come? When you look at it from that perspective, I think the church in America can relate with that temptation. I certainly think the church in South Orange County can relate with that temptation. 
Can we just enjoy what God's doing and look forward to what greater things He's going to do? In short, the Philippians were a gospel-growing community in a great place to live. And in that way, I think Philippians has a lot to say to us, not just because of that, but also and primarily because through Paul, God had a lot to say to them about this situation, and as a result, God has a lot to say to us as well. Now, in response to the rhetorical questions I just posed, Paul answers with an emphatic, no! The world is just too perilous. The gospel is just too glorious for the Philippians or anyone to take their ease and relax and push their, take their foot off the gas, so to speak. So in a famous verse from this uh, book, in chapter 3, verse 14, Paul gives some great advice. One thing we should do, one thing. Press toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ. And to encourage that, and by way of introduction to this amazing epistle, this morning we're going to look at the history of the Philippians because it's an amazing history, uh, just like many of the churches that Paul planted, but also because of their unique history, the themes of Philippians are very conversant and very relevant to us today. So we're looking at the history of the Philippians and the themes of Philippians to get to know this book. Would you pray with me as we start our study? Lord, we thank you that the scriptures cover the spectrum of human experience. This is true not just for us as individual Christians, but it's true of us as congregations of Christians. Or as if we have studied what it is to live under opposition, persecution, and in want and need, yet scripture also talks about how to live in abundance and ease when you're not the persecuted minority, when things are going your way. Father, all these, you have something to say about it. Father, give us ears to hear and eyes to see in this amazing epistle what it means to be a people of gratitude, humility, and joy. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as many of you know by now, if you want to learn about any of the, the churches of the epistles that we see in the New Testament, so the churches of Galatia, the Ephesians, the Thessalonians, the Corinthians, really where you need to, to learn to start your study is not with the epistle itself, but to actually study the book of Acts where those churches were founded. So when we studied the book of Galatians, we began our study not in Galatians, but in Acts chapter 13 and 14, where, where the Galatian churches were founded. When we studied the book of Ephesians, we didn't start our study in Ephesians, we started in Acts chapter 18, 19, and 20, and Philippians will be no different. What most people don't know, however, is the Philippian church, the Philippian churches were the, was the first church ever planted in modern-day Europe. Now, the city itself sits about eight miles inland from the Aegean Sea. So we have a, a map to give you a, a sense of scope of how the gospel traveled through the Mediterranean world in the first century. Now, that red arrow pointing to the bottom there is to show you where Israel, where Jerusalem is located. The blue arrow on the top is pointing directly at the city of Philippi, just to show you how far the gospel has expanded and traveled in, in the first 50 years of the founding of the Christian church. Now, by the time 
actually zero in a little bit more so you have a bit of more scope. So there we are up, up the top, it's a little bit blown up. You see the, the very tip of the bay of the Aegean Sea and then the circle around Philippi. And then this last slide is kind of shows you a topographical. You can see that Philippi is about eight miles in from the, from the port area there, kind of in a valley. Now, by the time Paul had arrived there to plant the church in the 40s and 50s AD, Philippi was already a rather old city. Philip of Macedon, uh, you may recall him from history class, he was the father of Alexander the Great, founded the city of Philippi in the fourth century BC. But even before he founded it, it was an older city, it was the Thracians, and when Philip has, had conquered them and subdued them and, and basically raised the city and then refounded it, he then named it after himself, and that's why it's called Philippi, it's named after Philip of Macedon. Now by the time of Paul, first century AD, Philippi was a strategic place for a church to be planted for two reasons. Number one, Philippi landed on the direct route of what's called one of the famous Roman roads, the Ignatian Way. So here's a picture of the Ignatian Way. Obviously, it's, it's kind of much rubbles and stuff, but that's what it was. The Ignatian Way, if you look at this next map, if you can see the white line, that's the Ignatian Way. On the right is Byzantium. So the Ignatian Way connected kind of the eastern frontier areas of the Roman Empire to the, kind of the central hub back in Italy. And so you see this road cuts all the way through, and you see how it goes directly through Philippi. So this city, uh, like in keeping with Paul's strategy of planting churches, was on a very traveled route. And so as people came to know Christ and they would move, they would move to other parts of the empire taking the gospel with them. So the first reason Philippi was strategic was that the gospel message could spread through the empire pretty quickly. The second reason was important because Philippi uh, was bestowed a unique privilege by the Roman Empire, the Ius Italium. Now, the Ius Italium basically meant that Philippi was a Roman colony. You see, years before, when Julius Caesar was assassinated, uh, the, the people of Philippi had great cost to themselves, a sacrifice out of loyalty to the empire and bloodshed, fought against the armies, or the, the, the armies of Brutus and Cassius, uh, under the banner of Mark Antony and Octavian, later known as uh, Caesar Augustus. The, the people of Philippi were loyal to the empire and fought against the revolt, and at great cost to themselves. Well, they prevailed. So as a reward to the, city, the people of Philippi, the empire bestowed upon them the privilege of Ius Italium. They were a Roman colony. And with that came all the rights and privileges of Roman citizenship. Now, there, the, the, the rights of citizenship in Rome in this world were, you could not underestimate the value of that. And it was a source of huge pride for the Philippians, as Acts 16.21 makes really clear. So, two reasons, right on the Ignatian Way, and they were a Roman colony. They had a lot of privileges. The citizens there had lots of privileges. But what makes that important is the people of Philippi, they knew what it was to have a new identity bestowed upon them. They knew what it was to live as a citizen of a kingdom far away and what value that had. And Paul, knowing this, knowing their history, capitalized on these concepts. So in chapter 3, verse 20, he writes to them, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he was using terms they understood as citizens of another kingdom away from them. They knew what it was like to live in light of that kingdom, even though it wasn't in their, in their presence every day. 
And they also knew what a value this identity was and to live worthy of being a Roman. And so in Philippians 1.27, Paul writes to them, only let your manner of life be worthy, this time not just of Roman citizenship, but be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So there's, for these reasons, Philippi was a very strategic place to have a church. What makes this amazing though, historically, Paul, we, we speculate, had no intention of planting a church in Philippi to begin with. As a matter of fact, the Philippian church, this amazing, uh, fruitful, vibrant gospel community was planted as the result of a series of misfired circumstances. Not about you, but as a Christian, that's really reassuring to know that in life, even though things are going sideways, God can still bring about fruits and results far better ever than what I could have perceived. And that ought to give you a sense of confidence and yet humility in the face of a sovereign God. Now, before we go on, I, I recognize that that sounds ironic. Confidence and humility, those two seem like polar opposites because certainly in our culture, we, we think one doesn't have anything to do with the other just as in antiquity. But, but Christianity helps us understand that the more you grow in confidence about God, the more you grow in your humility before God. So they're not contradictory concepts at all, they're actually complementary. The more you grow in your confidence of God, the more you recognize who He is, you inevitably grow in your humility before God because you also recognize who you are. And likewise, the less confidence you have in who God is, the less humility you will develop because you necessarily depend more and more on yourself and less and less upon God. And that's why those concepts seem contradictory because a lot of times our confidence is in ourselves and that's why we see how can confidence and humility go together because our confidence is not in ourselves, our confidence is in God. And when we see the events like just the founding of the Philippian church, we're reminded our confidence in God will breed simultaneously humility and amazement at what God does. So with some of that as the background, I want to encourage you to open up to Acts chapter 15. Go to Acts chapter 15 to see the founding of the Philippian church. Now, if you're using one of our pew Bibles, uh, just flip open to page 924. You'll be at the same place. Acts chapter 15, we're going to read from verse 36 to 40 and that's on page 924 in our Pew Bibles. Um, so, so let me just read this. Here we go, Acts chapter 15, starting at verse 36. This is the beginning of the, the second missionary journey of Paul. Acts 13, 14 lists his first missionary journey, and then his third missionary journey, I think, picks up in Acts 18. So they just came off their first missionary journey, planted a bunch of churches, the Galatian churches were one of them, and, and, and here they are saying, let's go back and revisit them, Acts 15, 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas, verse 37, wanted to take with them John called Mark, 
But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So let's stop. So um, this is referring to what happened in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, that, that John Mark, he, he bailed on Paul. I mean, he just said, I am, for some reason or another, I'm done with this, and I'm leaving the work, and he basically abandoned them on their first missionary journey. Now, Paul, he's kind of one of these Stephen Covey, highly motivated kinds of people. You can imagine him saying, look, I'm not going out again with this guy. I did it once, once bit, twice shy. We're not taking John Mark. But Barnabas, being this encouraging man, his name means son of encouragement. His real name was Joseph, but they nicknamed him the son of encouragement. They said, no, this is an opportunity to redeem John Mark. Let's take him on our journey. Now, we know, um, number one, we know that Paul regretted this decision because later in the New Testament, he asks for John Mark personally because they've reconciled. Uh, but here, they, they get into an argument, and here's the thing. When you get into a, a, such a bad argument with somebody who's literally named the son of encouragement, you know you're the jerk, okay? So, so when your relationship breaks with somebody named encouragement, you're, good chance you were the jerk, and that was the case here. Look at verse 38 and 39. And there arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from each other. I mean, this is like, this was like the dynamic duo of gospel proclamation. Paul and Barnabas planted all these churches. And in just the second missionary journey is not starting like the first one, is it? They're not even out of the gate, and the relationships are fraying. But what happens in God's sovereignty, Barnabas, he takes John Mark with him. They sail off to Cyprus. But Paul chooses Silas and he departs, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and they went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Now, you would think that was the end of it. Second missionary journey, not starting off with quite the fanfare that the first one did. They're already fighting with each other, but that's okay. Paul is going to go one way and Barnabas another, and maybe this is going to be good for the gospel growth. Let's read Acts chapter 16, a little bit later in this verses six through eight, and we're gonna put up this next map to show you that, man, not only did the second missionary journey start off with some problems, but it was just frustrating denial after denial in their experience. So the maps, we're gonna leave that up there and read verse six through eight of Acts 16. And when they went to the region of Phrygia and Galatia, so that, the reason they went there obviously is because they had been there before, they had planted churches in Galatia, Derby, Iconium, so they wanna go revisit them, but they also wanna spread the gospel some more, so they're gonna go up into Asia. Asia. Uh, verse six, they went to the region of Phrygia and Galatia, Notice, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So Asia on our map is slightly up and to the right. So they can't keep going up there, so it's a bit frustrating. Verse seven, and when they had come to Mysia, so they, they can't go right, so they're gonna go left, they thought, okay, maybe we can go up and around. So verse eight, uh, verse seven, and when they had gone up to Mysia, they attempted to go into B uh, Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So you see, they, they were going to Galatia, Phrygia, and the Spirit wouldn't let them go, so they went to Mycenae, and then they thought, maybe we can go around through Bithynia, and the Spirit stops them again. So verse eight, so passing by Mycenae, they're now coming back, they went down to Troas. You can stop there. Now, their second missionary journey starts with frustration, relationships are fractured. And, and what amounts to in verses six and eight, banging their head against the wall. They wanna to go to Asia and they're being denied and they're being denied. They end up just being at Troas. Okay, what in the world are we gonna do now? 
This is not working out the way we intended. And God, in his providence, literally gives Paul a vision that tells him, hey, come over to Macedonia. We want the gospel this way, not that way. And so Paul is obedient to that vision. When they finally get traction on this missionary journey, the second one, they end up in Philippi. So let's read verse 11 through 12. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and following day, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. Now, uh, we're not going to read the entirety of the rest of this chapter. I encourage you if, uh, to go home and take you five minutes to read the rest of chapter 16 to see the amazing uh, interactions of the founding of the Philippian church. But what at first glance you're going to see is this seems like more of the same kind of misfires. For starters, there's no synagogue in Philippi, which maybe was why Paul didn't intend to go there. His strategy was to wherever there was a synagogue, he would begin by preaching the gospel to the Jews first and then take it to the Gentiles. But there was no synagogue, no launching pad. So in Philippi, he basically kind of resorts to go down to the river and preach the gospel to the merchants that were there. And in God's goodness, a woman by the name of Lydia, um, her heart, the scripture says, were open to the gospel, and she becomes the first convert of the Philippian church. And so there's some good news, and they continue this ministry, but they are being plagued by a slave girl who is possessed of a demonic spirit. Apparently, this demonic spirit could foretell people's fortunes. They think it was maybe a, a kind of a... a she was probably a slave of the Oracle of Delphi or something, and she kept proclaiming that these guys can tell you about the gospel or Jesus, you can read that. Whatever it was, it annoyed Paul. It really annoyed Paul. Uh, maybe the whole rift with Barnabas was still on him, but the passage says, in annoyance, he exercises the spirit from the slave girl. And then because of that, he ends up in jail. The reason being, the slave owners realize, oh man, when she was possessed, she could tell fortunes. Now she's not possessed, she can't get us any money. But since you can't get thrown in jail for exercising an evil spirit, let's go to Acts chapter 16, 21. They grab Paul and they grab Silas. They go before the authorities of the city of Philippi and here's the reason they should be thrown in jail. Verse 21, they, Paul and Silas, advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So they appeal to the pride of the city of Roman customs, which these Jews clearly don't hold to. We need to get rid of them. Anyway, they end up in jail. So here's how the second, second missions trip turns out. Starts off, fractured relationships. Frustration after frustration, and finally, after one convert, they end up in prison. Yet, God does this to lay the foundation of the first Gentile church in Europe. So often our circumstances betray what God intends. And if there's anything we learn from our study of the book of James, is as Christians we cannot use our eyes, our physical eyes alone to determine what God is doing. We have the same situation here. Let's look a little closer at what God has been doing. Number one, in a city, Philippi, with a very strong feminine religious culture because of the Oracle of Delphi, it's not a coincidence that the first convert is what? A woman. But not just any woman. A wealthy merchant who no doubt is respected 
and will yield a great influence about other members, probably both men and women, in the city of Philippi. And by being thrown into prison, Paul and Silas are able to lead who? Right? The famous Philippian jailer and his entire family to faith. And while the scripture doesn't tell us specifically, we have to wonder if this young woman who was freed from satanic bondage, if she herself did not become a convert to Christ, like so often happened in the Gospels. So here we have a city with, with no Jewish, really, influence, not even enough to have a synagogue, and the standard was you needed at least 10 Jewish men to have a synagogue. They didn't even have 10 Jews in the city, so no synagogue. This was going to be an entirely Gentile work, and you have a wealthy merchant woman and her, her whole family, a strong Roman jailer and his whole family, and a freed slave as the foundation of this first Gentile church. What an amazing way to start a work to people who have no understanding of a Jewish lifestyle at all. None of those issues that plagued the Galatians would be there because there were no Jews. They were just all these Gentiles. You think about it. The city of Philippi, spiritually speaking, was about to get a repeat of their own history. Spiritually speaking, Philippi was about to repeat its history. I mean by that is this, this city with a privileged past and a proud present was beginning to hear the good news of another but greater emperor who would bestow upon his citizens a new status and a new citizenship who lives in another country and none of these people would, would have to earn that citizenship. As a matter of fact, they would receive this new identity because of the loyalty, the sacrifice, the actions, and the bloodshed of another. And all they had to do was decide that they wanted to be citizens of that country. Their history was going to repeat, except it was going to repeat spiritually. And it was going to be a greater emperor to give them a whole new identity and take them from their citizenship in an earthly realm and give them citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Friends, that's what the gospel does. That's what the Philippians understood very well, that we can have a new identity bestowed on us that changes radically the way we live now and forever. And all that it is required it's for a man or woman to say, I want the citizens in that country. I want that emperor to be my king. I want those laws to rule over me. I want what's true of that reality to be true of this reality. And I forsake my allegiance to this kingdom for the one that's coming. Because they couldn't have two citizenships. Well, there was no dual citizenship there. Philippi was going to repeat its history. But the emperor now would be Jesus Christ. That, that, that's somewhat of their history. Let's look now, let's shift to look at the themes of this amazing book, of this amazing church that flows directly out of their historical context. And the three themes, they're pretty obvious as you read the book. Number one, it's gratitude, humility, and joy. Gratitude, humility, and joy. Now here's the irony. Uh, 20 years after Paul founded the Philippian church, he is writing to them from yet another prison. Paul always ends up in prison for the preaching of the gospel. There's always riot or revival whenever Paul preaches, and he's in another prison thinking back to those wonderful years that he was with the Philippians after hearing great encouragement from Epaphroditus who came to him from the Philippian church. So he writes to them, and he writes about joy, gratitude, humility, and joy. 
joy at seeing God's purposes flourish no matter what the evidence of the contrary may indicate. Humility, because regardless of what he wanted to have happen, he recognized the sovereign power of God is at work in ways he may not understand or sometimes even like. Gratitude, because Paul recognizes that in fact all life and our circumstances do turn out for the good to those who love God. Even if at the present you wouldn't define those situations as good, God does. And so Paul fiercely writes what becomes the letter to the Philippian church. And he begins with the first theme right here in chapter 1. So flip over to the book of Philippians. Uh, If you're new to reading your Bible, just go right, maybe 10 pages. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, here's the first theme. Paul writes, in a prayer, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making prayer, making with my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. Now the word thanks, thanksgiving only appears twice in the, in the epistle, but the theme of gratitude flows all through this letter. So chapter one, Paul is thankful for their partnership in the gospel. Chapter two, Paul is thankful for their friendship in the gospel. Chapter three, Paul, chapter four, Paul is thankful for their sacrifice on his behalf. Paul is thankful that the Philippians have become a thankful people because that is the only appropriate response to people who receive the gospel. Friends, this is why in our corporate gathering, in our services, thanksgiving is a big deal. This is why when we pray prayers corporately, we always want to front load it with thanksgiving. This is why when you disciple your children, when you're talking about prayer at home, you want to train them and you to lead with thanksgiving. Because our default mode is what? Not thanksgiving, it's ask. I need, I need, I need, I want, I want, I want. And there's some room for that because as a heavenly father, he wants to provide. But the appropriate first response of the gospel is not, can I have more? Because that shows you don't understand what you got in the first place. It is gratitude, thankfulness. I'm thankful, I'm thankful, I'm thankful. Friends, what are you thankful for? Does thankfulness, does gratitude mark you? Friends, genuine gratitude. And I don't mean the kind of flippant, kind of, uh, kind of casual thanks we might throw around very, very lightly just because we want to be polite. I mean genuine gratitude is such an anecdote to so much of what's wrong in our culture. Friends, are you marked by thanksgiving Or were you more marked by entitlement? Are you more often grateful than you are grumbling? Are you quicker to see evidence of grace in someone and and, and thank them for that? Or are you quicker to see evidence of their own sinfulness and criticize them for that? See, the book of Philippians, the book of Philippians will help remind us that it is gratitude, gospel-fueled gratitude that grows us in gospel ways of living. And so the first theme of this book, flowing right from Paul, is gratitude. I'm so thankful for this. As he writes from prison, thankfulness. Second theme that we see through this epistle is the theme of humility. If if gratitude can help bring community, it's certainly humility that's going to maintain that. 
And chapter two of this book provides us the richest example and the most theologically mind-blowing passage of the entire book of Philippians as Paul discusses the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't introduce the doctrine of Christ's incarnation for, for intellectual eggheads. He introduces it as the foundation for all Christian humility and all Christian interactions. Friends, theology is always practical. Theology should never lead to puffed up minds, but sanctified lives. And we see that beautifully in chapter two as Paul talks about the the, the infinite God becoming finite man and uses that as a means to say all your relationships, all your living should be based on that. Friends, this theme, no doubt, will be the most countercultural to our lives because it is in direct opposition to one of our most cherished cultural values. And that value is the whole movement of self-esteem, self-worth, self-value. We can talk about that a little bit more, but friends, the way we currently understand self-esteem is not the way the Scripture talks about the way we should think about ourselves. Just look with me at these three, uh, four verses in Philippians chapter 2. Go to Philippians chapter 2 if you're not already there. It's page 980 in the Pew Bible. Look at these four verses of what Paul writes. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Ugh. Okay, right out of the gate, we're all just doomed, right? Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Oh, Paul, you're killing us here. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7, but made himself nothing. The second person of the Trinity who said, I want the galaxies to exist. I want air to be a reality. I want life to blossom. Made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. That's the Greek word doulos. It means slave. Slave. Being born in the likeness of men. (laughs) What in the world? Friends, if you can read that passage and your mind is just not being blown away, you are either not paying attention to what is being written in the Bible or the culture you live in because what we just read and the culture we inhabit are presenting 180 degree different worldviews. They're completely opposite of what we just read and what we're being exposed to and told to live every day. Ask yourself this question. Are you more important than the person sitting next to you? No, wait, don't, don't answer it because I know what you're going to say. No one here is going to say yes, right? No, there's always one person who just wants to be the devil's advocate. They'll say that. But everyone's going to say, no, I'm not, uh, of course not. Because no one would publicly admit that. So let me ask the question in a more revealing way. What is your immediate response when the driver in front of you puts on their blinker to come in your lane? 
You would speed up or slow down. Most of us, right? That, that's a more true indicator of what we think of ourselves as opposed to the people around us. What about the person who, who tramples on your rights? That's a big term in our culture. When someone, uh, when someone denies your rights or violates your rights, what's your first impulse? What about when somebody disagrees with you or somebody does something you don't like? That is a true, truer indicator of whether a gospel-fueled humility marks you than whether or not how you answer a, a, a question are you more important than the person next to you. Does that sense of gospel humility fuel our lives? Christ was made a servant. You, you've all heard it. If you've been in a church before, you've heard the expression, uh, I, I want to be a servant, just don't treat me like one. But Christ made himself a slave. And now, when you have a community like the Philippians where there's gratitude and, and humility flowing together in community, the last theme is the natural result that we see in the Philippian church, and that's joy. Joy, by the way, is the theme that the book of Philippians is most well known for. The word, or some variant of it, shows up 20 times in just four chapters. And friends, if gratitude and humility is something our world needs, our world needs joy in orders of magnitude, doesn't it? I mean, we have here amenities and luxuries the which our grandparents could not possibly even imagine. This week, I saw a, a smoke detector that doubles as a Wi-Fi speaker that you can control with your smartphone. I mean, what in the world? Like, why, why, you know, I mean, I saw this in the same kind of reading over in Las Vegas. They're having this uh, um, uh, consumer electronics show, and they created the holy grail of just laziness, a robot that will go to the fridge, get you a drink, and bring it to you, which actually is not that bad. I'd rather have that than the Wi-Fi speaker, honestly. But my, my point simply is we have more stuff then we possibly know what to do with. Why do we need a speaker, a smartphone kind of controlled smoke detector? So if my house is burning down, I can put on some good tunes as I'm running to the door? <laughs> but yet, the average American life is, is, is frantic and hectic and, and full of trouble and stress. Real joy is a rare commodity in America, isn't it? Are we much different? Are we, as a gospel community in the, in the heritage of the Philippians, much different than that? What is our joy anchored to? Do we have this kind of gospel-fueled joy? Reading Philippians, is, friends, friends, is both astounding and inspiring when you see this wellspring of joy flowing from a man who knew suffering, betrayal, hardship, the like which we would say that this man needs some serious therapy, but he doesn't. He flows with joy. I want that. I think you want that. This world needs that. But the problem is this world is consumed with happiness and doesn't understand the two are not the same. And are we being influenced by that? In a world that's consumed with happiness, Philippians reminds us that the attribute that leads to an unflagging faithfulness is joy. 
Joy is the attribute that leads to true, profound influence in other people's lives. Joy is the attribute that leads to a remarkable resilience in our Christian faith, not happiness. Because happiness is from the root word happenstance, which is related to what's happening right now. Joy penetrates and permeates all of life. And Paul will help us understand where our joy should be rooted. Gratitude, humility, joy. That's what Philippians is about. Gratitude, humility, joy. There's a good chance that every one of us needs to grow in at least one of those things, right? I mean, at least one of those things we all need to grow and develop in. And if, if for some reason, if you're good with gratitude, humility, and joy, I got nothing for you for six months. So <laughs> maybe you can serve in our parking lot security thing and come back when we're jumping in the Jonah or something. But I'm pretty sure all of us need to grow in gratitude, humility, or joy, and the book of Philippians is for you. And more importantly, the gospel as presented in the book of Philippians is for you because the gospel is the key to all three of these realities. Gratitude, humility, and joy is the natural outflow of a heart that apprehends the love and work of Christ. That's why Paul said in Philippians 3.8, one of probably the most amazing passages in the book, if not the New Testament, he says, indeed, I count everything, everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord. I pray that that is true of us as it was of our Philippian brothers and sisters so long ago. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this amazing book. And thank you that we are sitting in a church with hundreds of copies of this book. And yet, we know we live in a world where there are churches that may be fortunate to have one. And Father, as as Joel and Denise reminded us, we cannot be complacent and just enjoy the amenities and accoutrements of living in a, in a wonderful place in a gospel-growing church. We have to press on because there are people who do not know the gospel, who do not hear it, who do not have the blessings we have. And woe to us to stand on that day, as James reminds us, and a pile of riches next to us. Father, we want to be spent and well-spent we want to show up exhausted and tired because we've done everything we can to live for the gospel because the world is too perilous and the gospel too glorious for us to relax. Help Philippians urge us onward to, strip, to, to press on, as Paul says, for the upward prize in Christ. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.